Welcome to We Won't Be Silenced, Teaching Through Intolerance, a podcast about having difficult conversations, reading challenging material, and encouraging thoughtful discussion at every stage of learning. My name is Emily Brown, and I am a research librarian at Bristol Community College in Fall River in Massachusetts. I'm Sam Laso. I am a sixth and eighth grade English teacher. I've been teaching for 16 years in Edison, New Jersey. And I'm Lisa Polina. I am a high school English teacher in Maple Shade, New Jersey. Um, and I've also been teaching for well 17 years now. Wow, I am so excited to be here with you ladies today. So imagine being told that you couldn't say something you thought was important, something that you thought others really needed to know. As educators, we start important conversations every single day, but in many parts of the country, what teachers can and can't say is now being dictated by the state. One of the most recent examples of teacher censorship is happening in Pennsylvania. A school board in Pittsburgh voted to pass a bill aiming to prohibit educators from teaching what they called racist and sexist concepts. They state that topics surrounding the history of racism center the importance of identity and discuss the role of sexism divide children, when in fact, learning about systems of oppression brings students together with the tools to fight injustice. Today, we're going to discuss the invasiveness of book bans, explore ways which teachers are standing up for First Amendment rights, and talk about how teachers can safely and effectively facilitate difficult conversations surrounding hard histories in their classroom. We are thrilled to have you take this journey with us as we discover more about promoting truthful history and providing a safe and inclusive learning space for our students. As a librarian, I have to admit, we geek out and celebrate many different things, but nothing more than banned book week. This is the response of a profession. When a book gets banned, we suggest that everybody read it. We've been called subversive and sometimes militant, but I think we can all agree that banning books is the more subversive thing. First, I'd love to ask my co-host about their experiences with book banning in their schools. Um, sure. So uh, my district, I, I've been lucky enough that they've never outright banned a book. Um, but I, I can talk about how they've limited what we can teach along with a book. So a few years ago, the eighth grade teachers uh, looked for support to add Dear Martin to their English classrooms. And it was approved by the board. But after they wrote their units and went to have the curriculum approved, the board came back and said that they could not uh, talk about race or police brutality, which is kind of the point of the book. The book is about a, a white cop who targets a black boy. Um, and so this, this caused a lot of issues in our school because there's, there's almost no point to teaching the book just for literary elements. And Lisa, this just brings up so many questions because we're talking about a conversation that needs to happen. Yes, right. for sure. And giving kids a voice. For like, sure. When they come to you with questions, being able to answer them. And that was our, that was exactly our question. What do we do when a, a student brings it up as they inevitably will? Yeah. Wow. In my district, there was... Um, there was an instance where the book Melissa, formerly titled George by Alex Gino, was being pulled from the shelves of fifth grade classrooms. I was talking to a teacher who at that time had a student reading the book. It was a huge challenge for the teacher because the student had been questioning their own identity. So this educator was like, how am I supposed to validate their existence when a book about their experience was being pulled from their shelves and like 
literally from their hands. Like, how do you go about telling a child, like, you're beautiful and perfect the way that you are when a book reflecting their identity was being told that was wrong and bad? Yeah, that's heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking. And that book could be a window to somebody else who is not experiencing that. But that's what books do. They serve as windows, mirrors. Right. And sliding uh, glass doors. What we I love see. that. I do too. Uh, you that's know, how you build is, empathy. Yes. Exactly. Books, books are meant to broaden our, broaden our horizons, right? Not meant to, to I don't know. That, that's, that's just not supposed to just be an echo chamber either, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. We learn about different cultures and different times by, by being exposed to books, right? Um, in my experience, we've never had a book challenged at our library, but that doesn't mean colleges and universities don't experience the same thing. Um, thank you guys for sharing those thoughts. Um, according to an article published in National Geographic by Aaron Blackmore, censorship in the U.S. dates all the way back to, the, to 1650, when a religious pamphlet by William Pynchon was published. In this work, he claimed that anyone could get into heaven who followed Christian teachings. And this did not jive with the Puritans um, of Massachusetts Bay Colony, though not much jived with them. Um, <laughs> so <True>. they began, <laughs> right? <laughs> they began to gather, burn, and ban all the copies they could get their hands of on, on his work, which was entitled The Meritus Pri- Meritus Meritorious Price mm-hmm. of Our Redemption. Today, only four copies of his work have survived. So the Puritans were so successful that we only have four copies still in existence. It really is. <laughs> um, you know, think of the, the the amount of knowledge that we've lost in these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, so during the Civil War, pro-Confederate books were banned in the North and abolitionist books were banned in the South. A free Black minister named Sam Green was sentenced to 10 years in a Maryland penitentiary for owning a copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin in the years running up to the Civil War. Wow. So, right? Surprisingly, Boston, Massachusetts became the epicenter of book banning through the late 19th and early 20th century. So much so that authors would seek to have their books published in Boston so that if a ban resulted, the publicity might generate interest and sell more copies. Um, this this really made me laugh, seeing as, you know, Boston is now seen as the, uh, you know, liberal bastion of the yeah. North. Um, but Boston censors love to focus on immorality and obscenity as reasons for banning books. I mean, who um, decides that? Who decides what's immoral? Right. <laughs> I couldn't. What the Puritans were view as immoral is not what you know a modern day society would view as immoral. I also I love this more. fact that it generated interest and sold more books because, yes. like, who does not <laughs> want to read a bad book, right? And that, that's that's always the strategy. It's like it's forbidden, but now you must have it. Yes. <laughs> So librarians and education educators alike live for free access to information. It's our thing. We build collections that are representative of our populations, and that changes over time. We need to be aware of conversations and changes in society so that our collections answer the questions of the curious. But school librarians are now facing so much more scrutiny and are seeing an increase in demands to remove books from their collection. The American Library Association published preliminary data on book bans in 2022 on Friday, September 16th. According to the report, attempts to ban books have exceeded the 
the record set in 2021 in schools, universities, and public libraries. Get this, 1,651 unique titles were That's targeted. I know. That's an incredible number. It, it, it's it's mind boggling. Like yeah. individual books, 1,651 individual titles were targeted for bans between January and August alone. Now I'm wondering between September and now, how many more? I need to, yeah, how many more? Have we hit 2,000? I, I shudder to know. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. Um, so, so ladies, I have to ask, what's your favorite band book? Mine is Hands Down the Kite Runner by Khalid Husseini. I think I would agree. Um, I love Kite Runner. I teach Kite Runner in my senior AP literature class, and uh, it, it really is very, very powerful for them. But um, I also really love Mouse, which is a graphic novel about Absolutely. the Holocaust that I've read multiple times. Uh, it actually was the impetus for me wanting to enter into Holocaust genocide education. So I would have to give part of my heart to that book as well. Absolutely. This is a really hard decision for me. Um, my daughter is named Harper after Harper Lee, and I know the controversy surrounding this book, but it's, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird is also the first novel that made me realize I wanted to be a teacher. So it holds a special space in my heart as well. But I probably have to say The Hate You Give only because I find it to be one of the most powerful YA books written in the past couple of years. And the way it... Um, it sparks a love of reading and so many students who before this book maybe didn't see themselves or or feel passionately about reading. It's just such a, it's like a the gateway book for so many yeah. kids, yeah. Sure. Well, and as we mentioned before, as you guys mentioned before, mirrors and sliding glass doors, like this is a way to have conversations about like what's going on in the world today. Like whether or not a book is banned doesn't stop the violence that we're seeing in the street like this gives people a, a vehicle to talk about it yeah so the top 10 books um, that were banned in 2021 were gender queer lawn boy all boys aren't blue out of darkness the hate you give um the absolutely true diary of a part-time indian which is banned i feel like almost every year me earl and the dying girl the bluest eye Another classic that seems to be banned every year. Um, this book is Gay and Beyond Magenta. Five of these books were banned for containing LGBTQ A plus content, four for being sexually explicit, and one for anti-police violence. Say, who out there wants some more statistics? I do. Sure. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here's some information from Penn America. Texas ranks number one as having the most banned books. And this is between 751 and 1,000 books. Florida takes number two, yep, between 500 and 750, 750 banned books. And Pennsylvania and Tennessee tie for third at 251 to 500 banned books. 41% of all banned books have LGBTQA plus themes. 40% have a protagonist or prominent secondary character of color. 22% are banned for sexual content, 21 are banned because they deal with the topic of race and racism, 10 are banned because they have to do with rights and activism, and 4% have been banned because they're stories about religious minorities. Wow. Nearly half of all of these books that are banned are aimed at young adults. Wow, that's crazy. That's terrible. Yeah. 
ALA president Lessa Peleo Zoda stated the unprecedented number of challenges we're seeing already this year reflects coordinated national efforts to silence marginalized or historically underrepresented voices and deprive all of us, young people in particular, of a chance to explore a world beyond the confines of personal experience. I just find that quote amazing. It's yeah. so true. In response to these national efforts, the ALA highlighted increased censorship efforts during Banned Books Book Week's programming. <laughs> the theme for this year was Books Unite Us, Censorship Divides Us. This annual celebration in the face of censorship is something that all educators can take part in. Just contact your friendly neighborhood librarian. Catherine Schulten, a journalist with the New York Times, published an article in September of 22 that aims to help educators have conversations about censorship in the classroom. The article contains a buffet of material aimed at stimulating conversations about books and laws designed to discourage conversations about race in the classroom. For example, in one activity, students are given excerpts from the New York Times article entitled, In Texas, A Battle Over What Can Be Taught and What Books Can Be Read. Students have to then decide to what extent they agree or disagree with statements like, teachers should explore contentious subjects in a matter free from political bias, or lawmakers, politicians, and parents should be able to tell teachers which books, articles, videos, and other material they are allowed to use in the classroom, or it is the responsibility of schools to prepare students emotionally and intellectually with a diversity of voices, including some that challenge dominant historical and literary narratives. I'd love your thoughts on this, Lisa and Sam. What do you think about these lesson plans or conversations like this? I really, I like this. Um, it reminds me of a lesson that a colleague of mine facilitated with her eighth graders, and they were discussing whether Tom Sawyer, and I think The Outsiders too, which are both um, banned or questioned books, if those books still had a place to be taught in schools, especially Tom Sawyer with the, you know, the political views of the times, the views of race in, of the times, the use of language, you know, yeah. the N word. And students really enjoyed feeling like they had some voice in this conversation and thinking about what's important to be taught and what maybe it's time to let go of. Yeah. I think it's so important to give students an opportunity to enter these real life debates and discussions um, and have them think about the fact that there is censorship going on around them in schools. For sure. They might not even know. Right, exactly. Um, I, I agree. I, you know, I teach older kids now, and so we do have conversations like this, but I remember when I taught eighth grade, my school is a 7th, 12th, so I've, I've taught everything from 7th through 12th. Wow. Um, we were reading, and then there were none, which... Uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar by the book by Agatha Christie, but a cursory search of the title will take you back to the previous two titles, um, both of which include racial slurs. Um, so, you know, I, I remember a couple of years ago, my eighth graders, actually they're currently seniors, um, <laughs> found this and then were in an uproar. They didn't want to read the book. And so we talked about it. We talked about how the title has changed over time. Like it, it has um, gotten to a point where people realize that the titles were racially charged and hurtful and wrong. 
And then we looked at the book itself and we talked about, is this even evident in the text of the book? Um, because there is nothing in the book. There are no racial slurs. There, there's nothing tying to the title. So it really was just, it was a title, which was a hurtful title that didn't connect to the novel at all, the story of the novel. Um, and in having this conversation, the, the student said, oh, you know, this has nothing to do, like, you know, the fact that it was called this has nothing to do with the, the story. Um, and so they, they wanted to continue reading the story, but we talked about how, you know, we need to, we need to be aware of what is hurtful and um, where we can hurt others and make those changes as necessary the way that these book companies made the changes that were necessary over time. For yeah. sure. You know, this this just so reminds me of the mascot controversies yeah. that have been happening, mm -hmm. right? That this yeah. like yeah. what was acceptable at one point is no longer acceptable and that's okay. Yeah. You know, you know more and then you do better. Mm -hmm. But also teaching kids like the difference between um, like what you meant and the impact you had, right? Mm -hmm. Intent versus impact. I think all these are really important discussions. All right. So, wow. Thank you for that. Um, I just want to point out that Catherine Shulton's article links to lessons about teaching U.S. history, critical race theory, and textbook censorship. I think you should definitely check it out. Um, the American Civil Liberties Union has also created a resource that is aimed at educators to help fight against censorship in schools and communities. The ACLU's toolkit is based on the idea that everyone has the right to learn about whatever they want to learn about, and that book bans focus on predominantly Black and LGBTQA authors. As an interesting fact, a poll by the American Library Association in March of 2022 shows that 71% of voters oppose removing books from library shelves. We should also note that the same survey finds an immense amount of support for local public libraries and the work they do in the community from all political parties. If there's such widespread support for libraries and access to all sorts of reading material, what is really going on here? And what can we do to ensure children have access to education without censorship? Now I'm gonna turn it over to my good friend, Lisa. She'll tell us about some of the things educators are doing to advocate for freedom of speech and education and what teachers are saying about teaching real and hard history. Thanks, Emily. Um, so yes, as educators, we're responsible for making sure that students are exposed to the truths of the world. And sometimes that means having what my friend and colleague Jen calls courageous conversations in class. Great um, turn. Great yeah. turn of phrase. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're big on promoting diversity and equity, and that's, that's the phrase that we use with our Love students. It. Um, it also means providing the books and materials which won't shy away from honest history, such as the banned books that we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. um, in researching, I found it really disheartening how often school districts intervene in curriculum decisions um, all over the United States, not just in our area, uh, especially when curriculum attempts to present this open and honest account of not only our past, but what's happening in the present and making those connections. Um, For sure. But educators are standing firm um, across the country and insisting on teaching truth, fighting back against arguments about critical race theory, um, as well as advocating for diversity, equity, inclusion in their curriculum. And so my hope is that through this section, I'll share some of those experiences with you um, and my own examples and hopefully hear about some of yours as well. 
Um, so the first example I'm going to talk about, we briefly mentioned in the introduction, which comes from our area, the Tri-County area in Pennsylvania. Um, and the state is looking to pass a bill, HB 1532, which would prohibit teaching racist and sexual concepts in, or sexist concepts, sorry, in school districts and is aimed at curtailing the divisive nature of concepts more commonly known as critical race theory. Um, the item of the bill, the argument of the bill wrongfully states that CRT divides us and that the bill is aiming to teach truthful history. <laughs> Um, which is kind of a contradictory statement. If you're, you're cutting things out or changing things, then you're not being truthful. Um, so the Board of Ed was, was getting ready to vote on this. Um, and in the article, it mentions that the, the head of the Board of Ed for the Pittsburgh schools stood up and argued, um, in quotes, the district formally opposes and rejects any legislation that suppresses classroom discussion, promotes fear, intolerance, and hate, and devalues staff, students, and families of color, as well as LGBTQA plus students, staff, and families, um, which I found impressive that, that they were going to stand against this. Um, but I think what's most interesting is that this article is only a week old. Right. So this is just that assertion that our, our country is still dealing with the all of these issues of racism and, and censorship. Um, and so it, it mentioned in the article that both Georgia and Arizona are currently seeking to pass similar legislation. Um, so in continuing to do the research, I found that as of the time of us recording this podcast, 26, more than half of the United States, 26 states have taken steps to limit what can be taught in a classroom setting. Um, and most of those are citing critical race theory as the impetus to these decisions. But, you know, as we know, it's not with a full understanding of what critical race theory is. Right. Um, and it's interesting that you said 70, 70% are pushing for book inclusion because yeah. I, it made me think of this, this um, statistic that 25% of teachers, principals, district administrators don't believe that systemic racism exists. That's so and scary. That's, it is. That's really scary. Um, Those are the ones that want to ban the books. Yes. Yeah. So that's why I said when you said the 70%, it made me think, oh, well, I know where the other, the other 30% are. Um, so that was according to an Edweek Research Center survey. Um, so that's pretty recent. Wow. So my question is, how do we fight that? Like, how do we, how do you approach the 25% and, and help them see how harmful their decision-making is for students. Right. Um, so teachers unions have really been stepping up. So um, I wanna give some examples of what they're doing, even taking the fight to this legal level. Absolutely. So some of the schools, in addition to creating this legislation or passing legislation, have also implemented consequences for yeah. teachers who mm -hmm. are looking to teach honest history. Um, these consequences include lawsuits against the teacher, the school, the district, um, as well as fines for teachers who violate the law. One, one state was looking to pass like a $5,000 fine to any teacher who was seen as standing against their law. Um, so the two biggest labor unions, teacher labor unions in the United States are the American Federation of Teachers, AFT, and National Education Association. And both of those unions have stood up um, to respond. So Emily Weingarten is the president of AFT, and she said, 
quote, mark my words, our union will defend any member who gets in trouble for teaching honest history. Distorting history and threatening educators for telling the truth is what is truly radical and wrong, end quote. I love that statement that she, she boldly comes out and says that um, the teacher's teaching is not as radical. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of goes with your subversive, your subversive <laughs> quote from earlier. <laughs> and then Rebecca Pringle, who's the president of NEA, said a similar thing. Um, quote, she'll defend her educators' right to tell the truth, end quote. So the it's great that the support is coming from the top unions. Um, but where I find the disconnect is at the state and local level. Right. Like, yes, these top unions are saying this, but what's happening in our state and local levels? Um, what if they don't comply or agree with um, the NEA or the AFT? So how how can we fight back? Um, so uh, have you had any experiences with the union or, or having to stand up against some of these injustices? Sure. You know, I, I'm just going to jump in real quick yeah. so that I can then defer to Sam. Um, but this, this, you know, at the college level, we have academic freedom. And so like our curriculum isn't as under fire as um, it might be in, you know, high schools and middle schools. That said, I did work in Oklahoma for almost a decade where we did not have union representation willing to, you know, first of all, we didn't have it at all. But, you know, it's so good to know, at least on some level, that there are unions out there willing to protect teachers for, for teaching what is basically the truth. Yeah, definitely. You know, um, I haven't had any issues that needed to be addressed by the union, and I'm not super familiar with any issues in my district where the union had to intervene. I will say that um, a parent questioned my pride flag that's hanging in my classroom. She questioned why I was talking about the LGBTQIA+. And I had been having a conversation in response to homophobic comments that were made in my classroom. And I could not stay silent. And I didn't want my students to see me saying silent. And my principal supported me completely um, through that experience. So I felt, I felt really supported. And, you know, I always say that's a hill I would die on. And I was ready to, you know, I was ready to go to bat for myself because I think it's so important to have these conversations in our classroom and to speak honestly and openly, even if that means sometimes revealing some of your own political leanings, I guess. Yeah. But I mean, if you sit back and think about it, you know, like, let's say this student who said something homophobic said it because it's acceptable in their household. Like they have to learn that, well, you know, the people at your house might accept it. It's not okay. Right. Right. Like it's such an important conversation to have. Yes, definitely. Um, So another thing that that kind of came up in doing this research is the idea of the the misinterpretation of the bills. So um, one of the biggest ones, I was reading an article about an issue in Texas where a school district confused the wording of the law and then asked for teachers to include opposing perspectives on the Holocaust. Oh, ridiculous. So, you know, this bill was passed, but there was no guidance on what it meant. Um, And so 
you know, the district attempted to incorporate this law and the, the bill said that teachers should strive to explore the topic from diverse and contending perspectives without giving deference to any one perspective. Um, and it was just completely mis mistaken. And um, the executive director of curriculum instruction, uh, I think was trying to do a good thing and created this rubric to make sure that all perspectives were being seen, but then stated on a recording that if a teacher was going to include a book about the Holocaust, they had to include one with an opposing perspective. Oh. And, you know, I mean, I, in my mind, I was like, do they want students to read Mein Kampf? Because that's, what else would you that's the exactly only what opposing I perspective I can think oh, of. It's gross. Um, <laughs> gross and so, <laughs> I was thinking about, you know, why this happens and, and, and you know, yes, this, this Texas issue, there was a big article about it, and, but they're not alone in misinterpreting the law. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if you guys felt this way, but when I was doing my mandate analysis, you know, those bills, they're wordy and they're cumbersome yeah. mm -hmm. and, you know, it takes time to work your way through them. So I think there's no one doing that at these district levels. And they're just taking the words verbatim and imposing uh, part of the bill without really including the bill. Yeah. Yeah. Legalese is tough. Yeah. And and not giving not giving teachers training or real information about the bill um, either. Like I've been teaching for 16 years and had never read the New Jersey mandate, was never asked to read the New Jersey mandate until I started right. doing this work in Holocaust and genocide education. Same. Yeah. I, wow. I think I knew it was there because I, I, knew I feel like there. my curriculum instructor, my curriculum director of curriculum had told us about it, but yeah, I didn't open it before this class. No, you know, in Massachusetts is brand new and there's very little guidance, yeah. just that it shall happen. Right. Yeah. It's the same thing with this bill. Like, you know, yeah. it's talking about opposing perspectives, but I guess because it was so broad, they thought that meant for everything. And that's not necessarily the case. Um, so thankfully their union lawyer, Paul Tapp came back and um, made a comment about how we we're, we're not supposed to keep students from the world. The point of public education is to introduce the world to students, not to protect students from the world. And I really like that that quote. Yeah, um, yeah, so, you know, if we're dealing with the issue of these bills being imposed that we we don't really have control over, that happens at a level above our our capacity. At the least we could do is have someone on staff that can interpret these correctly, so that we're not presenting harmful. Uh, information to a yeah. school. Wow. Um, so I, you know, I, I've been in Maple Shade now for 14 years and I've definitely seen some curriculum changes, which weren't beneficial to honest history. Um, so in 2019, Phil Murphy, our governor signed a law that required state school districts to implement um, LGBTQA plus standards for curriculum in grades five to 12, all classes across disciplines. Um, at the same time, our history department was completely revamping their curriculum. So they wanted to include more black, black history. They wanted to include a genocide study beyond the Holocaust um, and a unit on the election process. So all summer we spent time writing 
new standards and new units and um, they got approved. And then when we came back to school in September, we learned that the Board of Ed had erased those things, literally gone in and taken them off the documents um, during their approval process because they didn't want any talk of the election in the classroom. It was 2020, it was right before the 2020 election. So even though their unit had nothing to do with, with politics, it was strictly about you know the electoral college and all of those things. Which is um, like so vital. Yes, it's civics. Um, That's what, why we have education is to prepare uh, kids for a democratic society. Yes. (laughs) So they were, you know, the the board of ed was too afraid of where the conversations would go if you even mentioned the word election. Uh, Um, And even though we were encouraged that summer to attend a Yale course on Black history, which was incredible. um, And we spent literally nine weeks meeting and talking about the classes and what we learned they told us that we couldn't put any of that information into our curriculum so you know fear it is and that that's you know there's a there's a fear that it's gonna cause disruption and strike discord and so they just encourage us not to have those conversations at all so, you know, our, our, our union is great and our staff is great and we've worked hard to, to stand up to these. We got the election unit put back in and um, the eighth grade teachers are currently teaching Dear Martin. Um, we haven't always been completely successful. And even when we have, the fact of the matter is, is that not all, all the teachers in my building are comfortable holding difficult conversations. So they're not thinking about fighting back against these things yeah. because, for them, it's easier to just not have to do it, not have to lead those kind of conversations. So, uh, you know, this is the perfect point to hand it over to Sam because she has some ideas on how to prepare teachers to do the important work. Thanks, Lisa. Yeah, so I just want to start with this thought of, you know, teachers are eternal optimists. I say this because to do this work, we must believe that our children will create a better future being a teacher is hard, but we come back every day. And I believe that most of us do this because we really believe that the path to a better future is through education. In Bell Hook's book, Teaching Community, A Pedagogy of Hope, she writes the purpose of education is not to dominate or or to prepare them, the students, to be dominated, but rather to create the conditions of freedom. Just sit with that quote for a minute, right? Like the purpose of education is to create the conditions of freedom. Wow. I just love that. And really freedom can only be achieved through truth. And the truth about history at that is that it's often uncomfortable, ugly, and hard to digest, but it's also vital to give students an honest account of the past. In Clint Smith's book, How the Word is Passed, he describes some of the failures within the Texas education system in particular. He shares a textbook that describes the transatlantic slave trade as, quote, bringing over millions of workers from Africa to the southern United States to work on agricultural plantations. Just like the language there, it's like so watered down. Right. And it's kind of like inferring that these enslaved humans had a choice in the matter, a choice to come over. He also shares a worksheet, which was used in a San Antonio charter school 
that had students record both the pros and the cons of slavery. This kind of reminds me of what Lisa was talking about with like the opposing perspectives. Yeah, Yeah. there is none. Uh, But in any case, (laughs) which was a Texas law. So it's interesting. Like this is right. Like this is where this is coming from. Right. And then another textbook which stated that slavery included kind and generous owners and how enslaved people may not have been terribly unhappy just like the harm that that this could cause right like the watering down of history and then this completely false information creates such deep misunderstanding it's like perpetuating bias and then it can cause like deep trauma for our students of color absolutely i i I hope you don't mind me interjecting there's a documentary called the revisionists which is all about texas and their textbooks. Oh, that sounds highly, really highly recommended. And we'll link that in our notes. Yeah, please. You know, it's our duty as educators to teach history honestly, even if that means being uncomfortable. Yep. You know, I think I'm going to have a sore neck from all the nodding I'm doing. Here. <laughs> yeah. I wish they could see as I felt the same way. <laughs> you know, our current society has been bombarded by violent acts. You can't turn on a TV or open social media without seeing shootings in schools, churches, synagogues, and grocery stores. Every time you turn on the news, we're faced with gun violence in the name of hatred. In a recent article in the 2022 December issue of Teaching for Justice, staff writers share that we can't discuss what happened in Buffalo without acknowledging historical context. Racist shootings don't happen in a vacuum. Understanding historical context is critical if we are to dismantle white supremacy and end senseless violence. Here, here. It's our duty as educators to teach difficult topics as a way for students to make sense of the world and to give them the tools they need to begin to fight injustices. People who shy away from teaching about difficult topics such as racism, genocide, the Holocaust, they do so because they believe that these topics create more divisiveness. In that Fox News article that we talked about in our intro and that Lisa talked about earlier, it states that the Pennsylvania bill would ban teaching of controversial topics. And they state that critical race theory further divides us by be, by making immutable traits of race and gender a prime factor in how we view others. And it makes the claim that CRT is the exact opposite of Martin Luther King Jr.'s goal, which, I mean, this is obviously ridiculous. Understanding diversity, systems of, impress- of oppression, and truthful hard history does not divide us. It brings us together with the common goal of justice. But again, it's that fear that we talked about. that fear, right? That fear of backlash. It's vital for students to understand hard histories. It is equally as vital for teachers to have the tools necessary to facilitate these difficult conversations. You know, and we had been talking about that a lot, that teachers need to feel ready to enter into these discussions. Because honestly, being the courageous teacher is not always easy. You know, I talked about this earlier, but personally, this year I had a parent question my teaching. They questioned my pride flag. They referred to me as a social justice warrior. They were afraid that my political views would get in the way of teaching her son reading and writing. And all this stemmed from having a class discussion after another child made homophobic remarks. 
I feel really lucky because my principal had my back. And also I had spent a lot of time building relationships and trust within my classroom. And my students know that I strongly believe that teaching literature is tied to teaching about human rights, social justice, and doing what is right. And we can't really untangle the two. Lisa and Emily, I'd love to know if you have had experience, um, experiences with students or parents being uncomfortable about the material, material you were teaching and maybe how you handled those situations. So, you know, I talked a little bit earlier about and then there were none and how I handled that with a student or well, multiple students who came to me upset about reading that book. Um, I, I'm lucky in that I've rarely, rarely had that at our district level. Um, I did have a parent who was upset with reading speak in ninth grade. Um, so, you know, with that particular case, I sat down with the parent and the student. We talked about why the book made them uncomfortable. Speak has been on the banned book list often and um, tell us a little bit about what that one's about this one's about sexual assault right so it's a little bit different than than what we've been talking about it's a little it's a little still, off topic but no, but it's still really important right to yeah. give voice to those sorts of injustices that gender violence yes. yeah i think it's super important and on top so of you know we we talked about it and i said yeah i would give the student a different option um and the student actually advocated for themselves and said you know i i I want to read it. I don't want to read something outside of the class. Um, I want to be able to participate in these discussions and and do this work. And the the parent agreed. And so that's the only time I've had a parent directly approach me. I've had a few parents question, send you know, a note to the principal, but generally, just like you, Sam, I found that my my admin has been very supportive. And so they've shut that down pretty quickly. Um and so I, I'm lucky in that I, I can teach pretty much what I want to teach in my room. And that's also probably because of the community and the safe space that you've created within your yeah. classroom. Well, yeah. that's my hope. <laughs> well, you know, I just want to add that, like, you know, while I don't have the interaction with parents that, that you guys do, I am so excited at the idea of being able to have those conversations with parents and students. And this example is like almost like the, the perfect way, the way these things should turn out, right? Is like a parent has a concern, they go to you, you talk about it, you discuss it, you know, and th this idea that the student was able to, to successfully advocate for themselves. It's like these conversations should be had. Like if, if a parent is, uncomfortable, they should be able to tell you, and you should be able to explain why it belongs in the curriculum. You know, like, the, it's just such a good way to incorporate and be able to explain why we choose the things we do. Yeah. <clears throat> Great story. So, you know, before you get into these difficult conversations with your students, you really kind of need to set the stage. Students need to feel that the classroom environment is a safe space. Learning for Justice uh, had some really great tips, one of which is displaying visual symbols of inclusion. In my classroom, I have a pride flag and a poster declaring Black Lives Matter, but teachers could also display inclusive posters or even like just pictures of their students. It's another thing I love to do. Love that idea. Goal, right? Like, because the goal is just to make sure all students know that their identities, their voices, their stories are valued. It's also important that students believe and know that they're an important part of the com classroom community. 
relationships are vital to having open and honest dialogues. Um, before teachers engage in these courageous conversations, a classroom community must be established. Teachers should know their students and students should feel comfortable with their teachers as well as with their peers. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite ways to build community is through read alouds and identity work. I often use Jacqueline Woodsong's incredible and gorgeous picture book, The Day You Begin, at the start of the new year. We then discuss how all of our stories are important and needed. I share my own identity chart and then have students create theirs. This lesson is a great way for students to start identifying their differences and commonalities and kind of celebrating both. And throughout the school year, I facilitate restorative circles. That's just a way to keep an open and honest dialogue within my classroom throughout the year. Lisa, in your high school classroom, what are some of your favorite ways to build a safe classroom culture? It's a lot of it similar to what you're doing. Um, you know, I have I have the pride flag posted. Actually, um, I teach a, a leadership class, and last year, leadership students decided that they wanted, as part of their end of the year project, was to promote inclusivity, and so we ordered pride flags for every classroom that's amazing and they sent out a letter and they said you know we'd like you to put it up I know we can't force it but we think the more so I still have teachers even from other schools emailing me to ask me because I've got a ton... I still have tons of stickers um because I ordered like 500 or something um so that and then um we do Jason Reynolds 10 things I've been meaning to say to you uh which is a great <laughs> article and we can link that um in our notes as well but basically it's his love letter to students um things he wants them to know about himself and then he asks them to respond and so their responses look a little bit different but a lot of it is identity work and just hearing kind of what they want us to know about them and their lives is really impactful um so powerful. they create like slideshows and we've done things in the past with identity maps we did a project, school-wide project um, two years ago, Dear Maple Shade, where students created identity map posters and then sent a picture of themselves holding it up uh, mm -hmm. in, and then we created a video from that. So just a lot of that classroom relationship building, getting to know each student on a personal level, um, yeah. which really helps. Yeah, I think that's so important that our students know we value them as humans, that they see us as humans. This is all going to set the stage to be able to enter into these more difficult and courageous conversations. Sure. Students also need the language to engage in respectful conversations and debates. It's helpful to teach students accountable talk so they have the tools uh, that they need to, to have the conversations. And teachers also need to be prepared for students to feel uncomfortable. You need to be, you need to be comfortable with your own discomfort first. Learning for Justice has some great resources, which we'll link in our notes. Uh, one in particular, it's a guidebook called Let's Talk, which gives educators a framework as well as the tools to facilitate these kinds of discussions. I've also found it useful to print out accountable talk stems. We can link those as well to use while discussing. And these are just things like, you know, I, I agree with you because, 
or I see what you're saying, but I respectfully disagree. I see it this way. It gives students language to facilitate conversations and it helps them to be respectful and honest and comfortable. Similar to the they say, I say. Yeah, exactly, (laughs) exactly. Um, You know, and making it not about the person, but about the ideas, all those. Yeah, it's just like an important skill for students to have, adults really need it too, when we go out into these worlds to be able to have these, these talks. During the conversation, teachers need to think about the material the students are being presented with. The Library of Congress gives some great tips on using primary sources, which can be controversial, especially when they share historical views on gender and race. One tip is starting the conversation by discussing the attitudes of the time, like why they're problematic and comparing and contrasting them to attitudes of today. Teachers also can discuss how language changes over time and how some words that were appropriate many years ago are now deemed offensive and, you know, kind of just talking about that progressive progression of language. Yep. I feel like I have had this conversation with my father-in-law. And I said the same thing. I've had it with Mm -hmm. my own mother, right? Like it's important, especially when they're reading books like Tom Sawyer or To Kill a Mockingbird, like where you have this really outdated language letting them understand how language evolves. Yes. And after the discussion, it can't just be like, okay, we're done. It's really important to give students time to decompress and reflect. I often let them, you know, go to your notebooks, draw or write about what you're feeling, what you're experiencing, what new ideas are you having, teaching them breathing techniques or just ways to reset when things become uncomfortable. When we give students the tools they need to engage in courageous conversations in respectful and honest ways, we give them the tools they need to be active and responsible citizens. Absolutely. And Emily, what are your favorite ways to help students engage in these difficult conversations? Well, for me, I really like asking open-ended questions. Um, Concepts that I engage with in my public speaking classroom, like the freedom of speech, have no clear, easy answers. You know, some students want to say, well, hate speech should be illegal, but then you say, but it's not. So, you know, like, and those conversations can be frustrating. And I think it's like, it's, it's getting comfortable being frustrated too, because sometimes there are no clear answers. And I think that it's okay to kind of talk through and explore what you're thinking in, in a safe environment, as you've stated is so important. I love that. I am similarly, I like to do the open-ended question. Um, And I sometimes do small groups, but I find that that's later in the year once we've built some of those relationships and um, set some guidelines for for open talk. Um, Because in a class of 30, when I have, you know, six or seven groups, it can be really hard. And I don't want anyone to be uncomfortable in their group because they feel like they're not being watched and things are being said. So what I like to do in hold Socratic seminar, I like to do the fishbowl style Socratic yeah. seminar, um, mm. where you have one group in the center circle and everybody else in an outside circle and the group in the center circle talks, the outside circle takes notes um, and responds. And then the group switch after. So that everybody gets a chance to talk. Um, but I find that it opens up a lot of conversation because they hear something from the inner circle as an outer circle person that maybe they didn't think of. And then they bring that to the inner circle when they're there. 
that's how I do my Socratic seminars as well. And I think it's just so powerful because it gives students a chance to do some cognitive chewing. Uh, yes. Um, you know. Oh, I love that. Right? That's a great That's term. a great phrase. <laughs> that should have um, been the name of our podcast. Cognitive chewing. I do love that. <laughs> um, and, and it also, it's, it's a good structure for having these conversations safely. So I think like the message here is right. Like build the tools, give the kids what they need. Don't shy away from the conversations because they need to be had. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we want to be clear here that sometimes history is uncomfortable. We have to face uncomfortable situations to grow as human beings. In fact, I think we can all remember our parents telling us when we were growing up that when we do something wrong, we have to take responsibility for it. Now, I bet that sounds familiar to everyone listening. Um, And that's what we're really talking about here. We're talking about taking responsibility for understanding the complicated nature of our history. No one living today is personally responsible for what happened before we were born, but we are absolutely responsible for what happens next. Love that. Yeah. Mm. I mean, what we need to do is build a better future. Yes. We, if we don't have these conversations, how can we learn and how can we grow? We've included a number of resources in the podcast notes, um, which we will absolutely provide. Ladies, are there any closing thoughts, words you'd like to share? I think teachers just need to keep being brave. Like we do this for our students, student uh, teaching, teaching is social justice. We're, we're creating a better future for our, for our students. So we have to keep doing this, keep doing the work, even when it's hard. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think we need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I know, you know, if I'm speaking completely, honestly, I'm not always, I'm not always comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, but we need to do it not for ourselves, but for our kids and for the future. So Absolutely. Well, ladies, this has been such an amazing experience. I'm so glad we were able to put together this podcast and have this conversation because it is so important. And so to everyone out there listening, thank you so much for joining us for our first episode of We Won't Be Silenced, Teaching Through Intolerance. Boop.